Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shalom, everyone. From this point, what are we doing? We want to go a step further this week. Now that we've seen the the unity of the tribes as uh, being brought out of Egypt, like he said in Psalm 80, verse 8, you removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. And then Psalm 128, it tells us that the wife, Israel, the wife, the fruitful vine, within his house, within his temple, there's a happiness that is in our future when we are replanted in the land. That's important because in the land, if if you'll notice Ezekiel's way of describing the replantation of the tribes of Israel, it's very different from the apportionment apportionment by Joshua in the time of Joshua. It's kind of scattered around there. It was it's, the the boundaries are set by by certain landmarks, but there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to to where the tribes are planted, other than perhaps maybe to accommodate the the Temple Mount. We know where the temple would be built in Jerusalem. Even the tribe of Zebulun, uh, which had a blessing of seafaring, they weren't even planted on the seaside. (laughs) Uh, The tribe of Asher was there. The tribe of Don had some sea coast. You, You had other tribes there who had coastal areas, but Zebulun had to travel from his territory in order to get out to the docks. Well, in the the millennial reign that Ezekiel describes, it's straight lines. The tribes are settled in these straight lines. If we're looking at a typical flat map, we might say that these are horizontal lines. So every tribe would have a little piece of the seacoast. Uh, every tribe would even extend probably to the the eastern side of the Jordan, whereas in Joshua's time, you've only got uh, three tribes, basically, that are going to be settled on the eastern side of the Jordan. But we know in, in that time, part of the territory will go all the way to the Euphrates River and then all the way to the brook of Egypt. And that's going to come up in our discussion today. What, what is this brook of Egypt? Because there's different ideas about you know, is that the Nile River? Is that, you know, the Sea of Reeds where they crossed? Is the Sea of Reeds even there today as it appeared when they crossed? Don't really know for sure. Uh, that's one of those things that'll it'll be answered in the proper time. But the, the equality of the tribes is what stands out in the millennial reign, that there's no tribe that has more or less territory than any other tribe. And so there's a, a certain equality, yet they're still functioning in their specific blessings. And that's the beautiful thing about seeing that return or what we would call the greater exodus. And there's a lot of talk about the greater exodus. That's what I want to set up. We, we want to set the framework in this lesson for the greater exodus But then the next week, we'll we'll immerse a little bit more into this greater exodus because it's linked to the footsteps of Messiah and and build on that. So we'll have the template, again, to know what we're looking for. And even if we're not the generation of the greater exodus, we'll still be part of it. 
Because remember, in scripture, especially in prophecy, things such as Passover or things, as we'll see today, such as crossing over the Jordan, we're supposed to tell these parts of scripture as though we were personally there to the next generation. If we will tell those things as though we were personally there, every generation will be prepared. If they are the physical generation of the greater exodus, even if we are not here for the greatest greater exodus, we will still be part of the greater exodus. Just the same way, even though we weren't at Mount Sinai, we were at Mount Sinai. Even though we weren't at the Passover in Egypt, we were at the Passover in Egypt because these things run in their cycles. And so someone who observes the Passover thousands of years later is still considered part of that exodus, except it'll be ramped up in the future. It'll still be the exodus. And so if we want to be part of the greater exodus, no matter which generation it is, we have to go back to the templates of prophecy. And the templates of prophecy are found in the Torah, right? So let's take a look at our working text, which we've been working out of the Song of Songs, which is Shir Hashirim. Shir Hashirim in Hebrew, because Shir in Hebrew is song. And then Shirim would be songs, plural, Song of Songs. And we're in chapter four, and we're looking at these first few verses in chapter four, because they are prophecies of the greater exodus. The only way that you know that they are prophecies of the greater exodus is to know about the previous exodus. If you don't know anything about the exodus from Egypt, then you're not going to wrap your mind around the greater exodus. It's the same template. Now, when you use a template, it doesn't mean that every detail will be repeated. As we look at the book of Revelation, which is going to describe the events of that time, we can see that some things might be in a different order. Well, we shouldn't be upset at that. We shouldn't be surprised at that because even the lists of the tribes are given in different orders because they're being used in different contexts. If if the tribes are all jumbled up in a list, then it's telling you something. Look for who's missing. Look for who's moved in a particular place. Look who's always together. There's a hint right there. Yisachar and Zimbabwe, they're always together, no matter what, any list. So looking at the template of the Torah is going to help us. I mean, these are the keys to unlock it in terms of understanding what's going to happen in the future, because here in the Song of Songs, it links us to the events of the past that were prophecies of things that will happen in the future. The greater Exodus, it reminds us of what happened in the first Exodus. So it says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilad. We're going to go back to that for sure. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. These verses here are describing not just the exodus from Egypt, but also the events at Mount Sinai, which in this case is being called Mount Gilad. Why is it being called Mount Gilad? Because something happened at Gilad that's going to help us understand that even going to Mount Sinai during the exodus, in a way, it had already happened. It had already been prophesied back in the lifetime of Jacob. It says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is beautiful. 
Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with layers of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. So let's go back to this flock of goats. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilat. Now, how did they descend? Well, again, there's an equivalent expression there. Let's back up so you can compare the two. He's using two types of clean animals. He's using your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like like a flock of newly shorn sheep. Okay, goats and sheep. In this particular comparison, it's not separating one from the other in terms of like the goats are bad, the sheep are good. They're both being used as a positive example. Okay, but hair tends to represent glory. Uh, I think even Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, you know, a woman's hair is her glory. Hair that it, it can be symbolic of that. So this flock of goats have descended from Mount Gilad. The descending, you say, well, when did they descend? They were told not to go up. Well, at one point, the elders were allowed to go up. And then they they were able to engage the presence. They were able to engage the glory. They ate and drank on the mountain, and then they descended. But in a sense, because later in the verse, it talks about your neck is like the Tower of David. That refers to your spiritual stature. And so there was a certain level of spiritual stature that the Israelites had in order to be able to see what they saw at Mount Sinai, i.e. Mount Gilad, right? These are going to be equivalent expressions. Are these identical mountains? No, but he uses one to teach you about the other. That's how prophecy works. We go to the template of Jacob's Gilad in order to understand Mount Sinai as a type of Mount Gilad, in order to later understand Mount Sinai as a template of from where the nations will eventually give up Israel in order to go on the greater exodus, right? The the difference in this later greater exodus is there will not be a descent, there will be an ascent, Once we're gathered up into that cloud, any descending will be done by mission in the kingdom. You you will be given a mission to do, and then you will go do it. And from there, you will kind of have to descend from a certain spiritual level in order to engage things in the natural earth like Yeshua did. But with this resurrected body, you will have the ability to once again ascend back into that realm, just like he did. So this flock of goats, they achieved a spiritual level, and then they, they Kind of came back down into the natural world once they received the Ten Commandments. He's like, Moses, we can't handle this. <laughs> uh, you go talk to him, and then you go back and tell, tell us what he said. So they, they descend from Mount Gilad with all of the glory of what they've just witnessed. And what have they done? They've entered into a covenant. They've entered into a covenant, the covenant of testimony. They're going to take the tablets of the testimony. That's what Moses is going to do. He's going to go up on the mountain. He's going to get the tablets of the testimony. So the twins of the gazelle and the the two breasts, these are thought to represent both the twin tablets, as well as Moses and Aaron, who taught the Torah to the people. In the next generation, it was thought to be Joshua and Eleazar, Yeshua and Eleazar. And so, like we say, you look at the template, and then you see how it's passed down to the next 
generation. So now I want you to think back to the first Mount Sinai, <laughs> or maybe to a previous Mount Sinai. If we keep looking, we might find another one in terms of the, the symbolism, uh, the template. Remember, Jacob had fled into the territory of Levan, or Laban, and there he had 11 sons. Benjamin hadn't been born yet. Not sure if he'd been conceived, but Benjamin hadn't been born yet. So 11 of the 12 were born in the land of Levan. They were born technically out of the nations. And so finally the day comes that Jacob intends to return. His wives tell him, hey, we don't have anything left here. Let's go. And so upon the advice of his, his wives, Jacob packs up and he runs. He gets a three-day head start on Levan because Levan is off shearing his sheep, if I'm not mistaken. Well, what did the Israelites ask Pharaoh for? A three-day journey into the wilderness. They needed a three-day head start. How many days did it take the Israelites to prepare for the events at Mount Sinai? They had to wash and get ready for the third day. So we, we see this three-day pattern that's kind of, it's like little pushpins in the map of the Torah. So we'll link these events together. And so once Levon realizes what happens, he pursues, and he's about to take everything Jacob has, and probably to kill Jacob. He, he has a murderous heart. He, he's a very greedy man, because he tells Jacob, all this stuff is mine. You know, he, he's definitely some sort of weird narcissist. You never really get a gift from Levon because he never really considers it yours, even if it's a paycheck. What do you say? He's, he's changed my wages 10 times. He keeps changing the rules. And, you know, that, that's one thing. But if you get into a competition with the Holy One, you're going to lose every time. And clearly the Holy One is on Jacob's team in terms of, of what is about to come out of the land of Levon and be settled into the land of promise. So it says not one of them has lost her young. So not one child of Jacob's was lost on this journey, even though they were young. And that's what he later told Esau when Esau says, come with me. He says, no, I, I have to go at the pace of the nursing children. There were still very young children in the flock. And that's what the prophecy says in the Song of Songs, not one of them has lost her young. So when Levine catches up to Jacob, we realize that Adonai is pretty much threatening his life. If you touch a hair on his head, you're not going to live to tell the story. And so Levine realizes he can't touch Jacob. So right there, they make a covenant. They make a pile of rocks. And this pile of rocks is Galid. Galid. You hear Gilad, Galid. It's the same word. It's just voweled a little bit differently. But this pile of rocks or this galid commemorates their covenant of no harm. And it becomes a mound of testimony. You can read that in Genesis 31, 47 through 48. So this pile of rocks, galid, from then on in scripture, we can look back and say, okay, when I see galid, gilad, I can go back to this story right here and I might get some things that will shine a light on the situation. The, the central idea here is they have created a mound, a galid of testimony. And when you break that word down, it's gal, which means to go round and round just to keep rolling, and ed, which is testimony, like a rolling testimony, a, a never-ending, going round and round. In other words, this covenant will never run out. It'll just keep rolling. 
What do we know about the covenant at Sinai? It was the testimony, the edut, same word. And what does it do? It just keeps rolling, right? And part of understanding the rolling nature of it is to understand that the feasts are connecting points as it goes round and round each year. So when we look later at Israel, after the Exodus, after the 40 years in the wilderness, they're getting ready to cross over the Jordan to go into the promised land and begin to to take their tribal inheritances. That crossing is so important that it's mentioned in the Torah, the prophets and the writings. We call that the Tanakh because it's an acronym, Torah, prophets, Nevi'im, and writings, Ketuvim, so Tanakh. It's that important that we understand the crossing over the Jordan. So in our generation, we'll understand what it's going to be like in the Exodus, what it's going to be like to be not only taken out of the nations, but to be resettled in our tribal territories. And you say, well, I don't know what my tribe is. You don't need to. That's that's not your concern right now. That's somebody else's responsibility and concern later. And in fact, if you don't have a tribe, if you're just a child of Abraham and you're coming by faith, then Ezekiel is told, just tell them to settle wherever they want to. Just pick a tribe. If you're feeling very Naphtali today, then go settle in Naphtali. Take your inheritance there. So the person who doesn't have a bloodline has actually got a little more choice in the matter of settlement. The crossing here is what's critical because we have to go back to this story of Jacob and realize after he's made this mound of testimony, these this pile of rocks to function as a testimony to future generations, there's a certain event that's associated with him crossing the Jordan because that's what he has to do next. He has to cross over the Jordan in order to enter back into the land of promise. And so in Genesis 30 to 11, Jacob refers to that. He says, for with my staff, I crossed this Jordan, this Jordan. With my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And so we have the template of an exodus, Jacob making an exodus from the land of Levan, from Haran, crossing the Jordan, and then bringing his own goats and sheep, his own flocks over the Jordan into the promised land. Along with that, his children. So you see how the goats and the sheep can be symbolic of the family. Not one of them is lost. He, he brings the, the livestock with him, the same livestock that, that we're reading about in the Song of Songs. So even though, if Jay, even though Benjamin was not born yet, or maybe he wasn't even conceived yet, it doesn't matter. He was still inside Rachel and Jacob. He's still there. So the 12 tribes are going to be part of this crossing. And in crossing, Jacob says he used his staff, which is an odd thing to bring up, but he thinks it's so important that he needs to tell us this, that he crossed this Jordan with his staff. And the Midrash Rabbah explains this. It says he placed his staff in the waters of the Jordan River and God miraculously parted the waters for him. And so later, as Jacob's descendants are standing there at the Jordan, getting ready to cross over, they're about to experience the same miracle that Jacob is explaining, that he used his staff to cross the Jordan. Well, how did the Israelites get across the Reed Sea with Moses' staff? 
How did the Israelites even get out in the greater Exodus? The staff. Remember the he would throw the staff down and it would turn into a snake. You know, it, the staff was instrumental in the Exodus. It was instrumental in crossing the Reed Sea. And so this staff of Jacob is going to be instrumental as well in our prophetic template of understanding how the Israelites crossed the Jordan in order to be settled in their territories so that their exodus would finally be concluded with an introdus. I don't know what you call that. <laughs> Once you, they're done with the exodus, there's got to be an introdus. We've got to go in. So Joshua, Yehoshua, in chapter 4, verse 19, he starts explaining this. He's trying to explain to the people the importance of crossing the Jordan. He says, now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Yericho, Yericho, Jericho. Now, do you see in Gilgal, do you see that same two-letter root of Gilad and Galid, the Mount of Testimony? It's, it's not random. Again, he's he's connecting the push pins for you and say, hey, look back here at what happened to Jacob. He says, with this staff, I crossed this Jordan. When the Israelites cross the Jordan, they're doing it during the week of Pesach, Passover. When did they cross the Reed Sea? During the week of Passover, Pesach. So you see how prophecy, the the feasts really are pushpins going round and round and, and helping you to connect. And if you could almost see it like a DNA spiral, like you're at the same point, but time has passed. So even though it's in a different time period, it's in the same time period. Really weird. But that's how prophecy works. And that's why we learn the templates. If they cross through the Reed Sea, the Reed Sea parts with holding out the staff, then it's going to happen again. So in the greater Exodus, we want to know this. We want to know this whole story. We want to understand the template of when these things have happened before, when they happen to Jacob, when they happen in the Exodus from Egypt, when they happen at the crossing of the Jordan. And I would suggest that it's probable that when Jacob came across the Jordan, when he says, with this staff, you know, I crossed this Jordan, I suspect it happened at the very same time. It probably happened during Pesach week. Let's just let's keep reading here. Those 12 stones, which they had taken from the Jordan, which is the Yarden in Hebrew, comes from Yarad, which means to come down, to descend. Yehoshua set up at Gilgal. So that tells you right there, there's liable to be a mound of testimony right here. There's liable to be some testimonial rocks set up right here, because that's the template of our father Jacob. He said to the sons of Israel, and see if this doesn't sound familiar to you. When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Right? Do you notice the language there is almost identical to how we are commanded to teach about the Passover, the Exodus to our children? When your children ask, you're supposed to say, this is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt. Joshua is using the very same language right here, the very same language. And so that Passover template 
is now being connected to this Passover. And like I say, it was probably a a subject of discussion when Jacob passed over it the first time, when he's got his sons with him, when they sit down there at the Jordan. And if it did happen during the month of Nisan, the Jordan rushes with a lot of water. Remember, the, the rains fall in the winter in Israel. And so the the Jordan is full. It's engorged at that time of year. It's not like at Sukkot where it's more like a little stream. You can just kind of wade through it and have a blast. But it's it's a pretty fast-moving river during the Passover. And so imagine Jacob sitting down with his sons and explaining this mound of stones, this mount of testimony. That was the result of Levon turning back because I suspect had Levon persisted in pursuing Jacob, I suspect that Jordan would have opened right up with his staff the way that it did, except I also suspect that Levon and anybody with him who were pursuing Jacob and his children would have been drowned. And maybe this is what Levon saw when he had that visitation in the night. Maybe he he could see the writing on the wall that the last thing I want to do is chase Jacob into this river. So they make this agreement. And so I'm sure the sons were asking Jacob, daddy, you know, what does, or Abba? (laughs) Mother, tell us about this. And so he had to tell this Passover story to his children. And, And later he reminds them of it. He says, with this staff, I crossed this Jordan. And so right here, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Which Israel? Israel Jacob or Israel the 12 tribes? Yes. Yes, absolutely. This is how prophecy works. It it just keeps recycling. And so the same thing that happened to Israel, crossing with his sons, his 11, almost 12 sons, is the same thing that happened to the 12 tribes. Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed just as the Lord your God had done to the Reed Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So why would we fear him forever? Just by knowing that he dried up the waters of the Jordan, that he dried up the waters of the Reed Sea. Well, they may not, you know, the nations of the world may not care right now. But it's not because the information hasn't been recorded from ancient times. Jacob made sure that it was recorded that he crossed the Jordan with his staff, this Jordan with his staff. Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Israel crossed the Reed Sea on dry ground. So in the future, when something even greater happens, when those 12 tribes who have been scattered around the world into the wilderness of Egypt, the wilderness of the peoples. Remember Ezekiel calling the wilderness of the peoples, kind of equating it with the wilderness of Egypt. So Egypt stood for the nations. They've been scattered out there to give the testimony of Yeshua. And what are they going to do? They're going to bring a lot of people back with them. A lot of people will come just like they came back with them in Egypt. There will be a lot of people attached to them. They might be strangers, but they're strangers moving into the covenant, not moving out of it. And so it says that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. So they're going to have no excuse. If we proclaim this, then in that future great, greater exodus, 
when he once again takes his sons and daughters out of the nations, he will take them over the Jordan on dry ground. They won't be harmed. Now, in Revelation, the the flip side to this is that the kings of the east, is what they're called, might believe that they could chase Israel into this place. And we're going to talk about what is this place? What is this promised land? What is this Israel that they're crossing into? Because all we really know of Israel, if we've seen it with our natural eyes, is just a place on earth like any other. It does have some pretty spots, but in the, in the natural realm, are there prettier places? Yeah. If you don't look at the, the land of Israel with spiritual eyes, it, it's even less appealing than many other places on earth. But if you see it with your spiritual eyes, it's the most beautiful place on earth. Why else is it so contentious? The spirit knows what the natural eye cannot see. Even rascals covet that land because their spirit knows what their natural eyes cannot see. There is a spiritual authority associated with that land that they covet. They don't want to do it the right way. They don't want to keep the covenant. They want to make up their own testimonies and stories and levels of authority and conditions for remaining in the land. Yeah, they want to do all that. Doesn't mean they don't covet it. Doesn't mean their spirits don't recognize the importance of it. So crossing over the Jordan, as he brings his people back, he, we have to cross over this Jordan. And that's why we want to look, what is the Jordan? What does it represent? Just give you an easy hint. Jordan, which comes from Urad, like Geshem Urad, rain descends. What is the Torah compared to in Deuteronomy and the Song of Moses? It's compared to rain. It's compared to dew. So what comes down? The rain, the dew of resurrection, the rain of the Torah, the moisture of the Torah. And if it falls on people who take it in, who soak it up, then that which comes down enables them to ascend. It gathers them up into the land of promise because you're going to go up to Israel. You're going to go always up to Jerusalem. No matter where you are, you go up to Jerusalem because there's a spiritual elevation there that not just anybody can engage in. But in order to engage it, you have to cross over the Jordan. doesn't matter if your plane landed in Tel Aviv, you're not quite there yet. You put your feet in the physical land in faith, but clearly what the, the spies saw when they spied out the land was not everything in the natural realm. There was some supernatural grapes and supernatural pomegranates and some giant-sized people there. A little scary. But once you know stuff is there, then when you are there, you're not so surprised when strange things happen that just don't seem to be of this world. But until then, we're concealed out here among the peoples. Nations can be represented by the sea in scripture. Sometimes the sea represents the nations. And so he's going to bring us out of those nations, and we are going to cross through those nations in order to attain to this greater exodus. He will gather us out on dry ground, right? There'll be a separation, just like on day two of creation. What did he do? He separates the waters from the waters. That day is not declared good until the third day. On the third day, the waters that had been separated, what does he do? He gathers them into one place, and then the dry land appears. And then he pronounces it good. Just the separation was not the good part. It's actually a very painful part. It's a very painful day. 
where there's just separation because it's seen as a, a type of death. There's just separation. It's not holiness. Separation to be gathered to like kind and like mind. That's holiness. Just being set apart is being dead. But if you're separated and gathered, that now you have all the elements of holiness. And so once the dry ground appears, this is going to be the means, in a sense, to cross over. Just being separated from Egypt was about to get the Israelites dead. And then what happens? The water separated from the waters. Uh-oh, Pharaoh's on our tail. But then the dry land appears. What happens? They cross over. The waters turn back on Pharaoh, kill him and his chariots. But then what happens? They go on through the wilderness on dry ground. And then he creates this oasis for them. Remember the 70 palm trees? They, they start walking in clouds of glory. So even in a wilderness, they have water. They're walking in a cloud. A cloud is made of water. So they're in a dry place, but there's water. So there's a, a stage of separation. And that in-between place is a place of preparation, separation, preparation. And the goal is to bring us up and over the Jordan. You'll, you'll get that idea like, wow, he brought me through here on dry ground. He made a way to take me out of the nations, but I still have a crossing over to do. He, he might take me out of the Sea of Reeds, but then he's also going to bring me over the Jordan. It's kind of a two-step process if we want to look at it that way. And so how will the peoples of the earth know that the hand of the Lord is mighty? Well, when they see this process, they'll be able to know about this process because the nations knew about the exodus from Egypt. The nations knew about the miracles in the wilderness. The Israelites don't know about how much they know. It's only later, 40 years later, when Rahab tells the, the two spies that she tells them how the fear and the dread of them has fallen upon the nations because they've heard of all this stuff. And that seems to be a pattern here. A lot of times when he picks you up and starts to separate you out and walks you through miraculous places, it's like you're not even aware of what he's doing. To, to you, it's just, it's not like any other day for sure. You, you have a sense of being separated, but you don't always get everything that's going on. Maybe it goes back to being you know, walking in the clouds of glory or the Sukkot of glory. You don't really understand the grasshopper principle. Like the spies were telling Moses, we were like grasshoppers. Well, as it turned out, they were the giants and the Canaanites were the grasshoppers. That was the truth. And so this is part of the process. He's going to take us out of the nations. There's kind of a staging preparation stage. And then there is a crossing over the Yarden. From the place where it comes down, there will be a going up, right? So as they, they cross over, as they're preparing to cross over, Deuteronomy 27 verses 1 through 3 describes uh, this preparation. It says, Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. Wow. All right. So the commandments weren't just back there at Sinai. There's still a mound of testimony. And so they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. Of course, Moses is going to die right after this. And the people are going to turn to Yeshua to take them over the Jordan. And here's what he says. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Yarden to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones, Avanim Dolot, 
and coat them with lime and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So having gone through the Torah portion this week, which was Korach, remember the rebels tell Moses and Aaron, you took us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to bring us into this God-forsaken wilderness? And they just flipped the truth that Israel was the land flowing with milk and honey. And now they say, well, no, Egypt, the world is the land flowing with milk and honey. That mindset is still prevalent today. People view the life on this earth as the land flowing with milk and honey. And they cannot see the spiritual side of their existence, that there is a land of promise that is flowing with the true milk and honey. But it's based on a promise. And it's if you're not immersed in the word, it is really hard to see that promise. It is really hard to not just write on them all the words of this law, but to obey all the words of this law. Because if you can't obey all the words of this law, when you cross over, then how long will you stay in a land flowing with milk and honey? You will have to fall back down to the natural land that you believe is flowing with milk and honey. If you want to live in the Garden of Eden, and why do we call it the Garden of Eden? Well, the rivers of Eden were said to flow with uh, milk, honey, wine, and balsam. Milk, honey, wine, and balsam. And so that it's kind of a code in here. The rebels with Korah were saying that Egypt was the land of Eden. Egypt was the Garden of Eden. Human beings run the Garden of Eden. But Adonai is saying, no, I'm taking you to a land where I set the rules. I decide what obedience is. I make the commandments. And if you're not willing to keep those commandments, then the land is going to spit you out. Now, is there room there to learn? Apparently, because that's what milk is for. It's the milk of the word to learn. But if you can't engage the milk, how will you go to the honey? How will you go to the wine? How will you go to the balsam? How will you go into these inner places of the garden instead of just the outer reaches of the garden? So there's there's a crossing over the Jordan that is necessary to go back up to the Garden of Eden. And Moses says, how are you going to do this? He says, keep all the commandments so that when you cross the Jordan, then you can not just enter it, but you can remain in it. And that's going to be the rule. She say, well, what about all those people who didn't know all the commandments? They were saved, but they didn't know all the commandments. Well, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. As you cross over, there is some realization that, yeah, he was serious about these. He was serious about these commandments. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. I don't know them. That's okay. Go sit by the milk river. <laughs> I have a milk river for you if you will simply agree. And if you were saved through the blood of Yeshua, I don't know why you wouldn't. Of course, I also don't understand why you would wait. But nevertheless, we each do the best we can in our generation. And so we just have to say, Baruch Hashem, if he's shown us more commandments than maybe past generations of people like us, then Baruch Hashem, we might be getting closer to the greater exodus. So that those who are still alive and remain, as they approach the Yarden and they see the stones with the, with the testimony on them, it's just like, yeah, we got that. I'm sure he will expound them unto us more perfectly once we enter in, but I won't have to hang out at the milk bar for the next thousand years. 
trying to figure out the things that I was just too stubborn, you know, but I think for those whose hearts were 100% his, they did everything they knew to do. I don't think they're going to hang out long at the milk bar. I, I think they'll, they'll be moving, you know, into the, the inner places of the garden very quickly. And it's understood that the Garden of Eden hovers right above the land of Israel. One of the entrances is thought to be at Hebron or Hebron. Hebron. This is why the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs are buried there. It's thought to mark an entrance back in. It's in a natural spot, but it's also a very spiritual spot, so much so that uh, it says in the Hebrew that when Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah in the field, that the trees literally stood up. That's how supernatural that place is. Uh, so when we cross over, we don't want to just enter. We want to obey all the words of the Torah. And that's what we're doing now. We're practicing. We're practicing. Because the Jordan is the official entrance to Israel, which is Israel. Israel, you can get into if you fly into Tel Aviv. Not exactly that Israel, right? That's the natural place of it. But the natural and the spiritual will one day once again be married. You see that in the book of Revelation. These two realms once again become married. And that's when it's going to take a resurrected body to be able to function in the more holy places of the land of Israel, specifically the Temple Mount and Jerusalem. Jerusalem will, will understand her elevation at that time, that Jerusalem will descend once the, the lower Jerusalem is cleansed, once it's prepared, once there's a people there who are committed to keeping the, the words of the Torah, then she can descend. There will be a, a purification where those two realms can once again be married. And we want to be part of that. But for that era, the Jordan is the official entrance. So even though the Israelites have been wandering in the southern territory of Israel for 40 years, they weren't officially in the land until they crossed the Yarden like Jacob. That's the door. And if that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, like, okay, but I still don't get this Yarden, Jordan, Yarad thing. I wrote a book called 50,000 Degrees and Cloudy. And I explained to you the symbolism of the Jordan River, trace it all the way back to the spring, into the headwaters, into the Galilee down through the Jordan to the Dead Sea, and how prophetically that Jordan is the story of Israel, how it is the story of resurrection. And so in that sense, crossing the Jordan does represent the resurrection of the righteous, the first resurrection. I don't know how it you know, addresses the second resurrection a thousand years later, where the thrones are set up and there's apparently much more stern judgment. But for the righteous, who are going to resurrect at the first resurrection, they will cross this Jordan. They will cross this Jordan. A way will be made. Sounds like somehow there will be kings, there will be rulers who believe they can go where Israel just went. And the Euphrates will dry up this time, uh, not the Jordan. The Euphrates will dry up and it will be a trap as they go through there thinking somehow that they can enter into a holy place, which remember in, in the millennium, the kingdom will extend all the way to the Euphrates, might explain. But if you're not willing to obey the commandments, then going 
through there on dry ground is a death march or a death roll. I don't know how they're getting through there. Marching, rolling, driving. But the Yarden, it, it is the door in. The resurrection is the door in. Until that time, you say, well, what about the people who are already dead? What about the righteous dead? They're already there. They're awaiting the resurrection of the dead, which is why they're crying out, how long, O Lord? There, there is a consciousness. Now, are they in some kind of agony? I don't think so. I think their heart is like their father's heart. Their father is longing to redeem not just Israel. He's longing to redeem the whole earth. He's longing to restore the whole earth. He's longing to tell Yeshua, hit it, son. Go get him. He's longing to do that. And, and those souls cry like, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Because they understand until the last soul comes in, they won't experience the resurrection of the dead and be put back in to a resurrected body. Until then, the way it's understood in Judaism and also in the book of Revelation is they're given a white robe. And I call it a space suit because it helps them to function in that space. Uh, they're under the altar. It's understood to be an area below the, the seat of the throne, around the feet of the Father. And it would be just above where the, the outer altar was on the Temple Mount. If you would look straight up from there, that would be the, the bosom. The, the bosom of the altar is the, the base of it. And then it's called the, the bosom of Abraham. Uh, we'll talk some more about maybe uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being the chariots of Israel and why they might be seen in the mountains uh, as we're reading through the prophets and so forth. But there's that hovering. And so, yeah, they're, they're given white robes. They're waiting. They can function in those spacesuits, in those robes, but they're just like us. They're crying out for the resurrection so spirit, soul, and body can function. And so that now they can take on their mission. They can do what they need to do so that the holy city can be purified, so that the tribes can be resettled in their land, so that the rest of the earth can be brought in, can be evangelized with the adversary bound for a thousand years, so that the restoration can begin. But before that, you know, well, maybe concurrent with that, there's going to be a lot of tribulation because a lot of people can be brought in, but there is still an element of completely wicked people, and they have to be dealt with. And so that's part of the, the crying out. How long, O oh Lord, until you get rid of these completely wicked people who are interfering with this process of restoration, with this process of redemption? So I'm losing my voice a little bit. So we'll just, we'll stop there. But the week after, we'll pick up right there. And we'll continue looking at this template of the greater exodus. So as we prepare and prepare the next generation, we'll, we'll have a good working knowledge of what to expect. And I'm not going to tell you specific things. A lot of people want to teach prophecy and they're going to predict this government's going to fall and this is going to be the army that marches over and this is going to happen and this is that country. I don't want to do that because so much of that stuff is just wrong. What we want to do is if we'll stick as much as possible to just what the scripture says, no matter which country name or ruler name or whatever that gets filled in that blank at the proper time, you won't be caught off guard if somebody taught you a different name or someone taught you, well, a different country is going to do that, or this is the way that it's going to happen. And then there's something a little bit out of order, which is the biblical way. 
Just like if you look at the plagues in Revelation, they are not in the same order. If you look at lists of the tribes, they are not in the same order. He'll give you different viewpoints. And, and that's where we need to be humble and just say, okay, Father, you'll reveal it as it happens. And I'm good with that. Um, I'm good with you disclosing to me in the proper time the information I need to walk before you faithfully. And if it would make me arrogant, if it would make me proud, if it would make me a mocker, if it would make me an isolationist, if it would make me kooky, if I knew all the answers, then don't give me all the answers. Give me everything I need to keep me unkooky, because there's enough kookiness in the world. <laughs> because once you get kooky, even if you tell people the truth, they don't believe you anymore. So we don't want to be one of those people, right? Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.